Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Tigger Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Pulse by Public.com, providing tools for IR teams to engage with retail shareholders. I'm your host, Noemi Di Stefano. Coming up on the show this month, we speak to the newly crowned winner of the IR Magazine Best Investor Relations Officer Large Cup Award, Magda Polchinska. Palczynska, who is head of IR at Unicredit, joins us on the ticker to discuss some of the secrets behind both the firm's successful IR program and winning approach to buy-side and sell-side engagement. Later in the show, we also speak to Chris Temple, filmmaker and co-director of the documentary This Is Not Financial Advice, a film that highlights different types of retail investors populating today's markets and their behavior and attitudes. I strongly suggest you stay tuned for that, but first I wanted to take you back to a couple of weeks ago, when IR Magazine hosted its Think Tank Europe event in London. It was a day dedicated to discussing converging macro challenges that are top of mind for IROs and investors right now, including new ESG priorities, regulations, reporting challenges. Speaking of which, we just released our latest episode of IRTV Now on our website, where we discuss the most recent regulatory moves. So head over to irmagazine.com to watch the full show, which includes an interview with Sue Lloyd, Vice Chair of the ISSB, about the newly launched IFRS S1 and S2. Back to the think tank, on the day I spoke to Tish Crawford-Jones, Director of IR at Q4, to discuss best practice on how to identify and target investors in uncertain times. As markets and the fight for capital evolves, the shift from active to passive investment is affecting targeting strategies. I started by asking Crawford-Jones what this means in practice. So there's a lot of data um, to show that um, active investment is underperforming passive investments. So there's been a huge amount that's been going on in the market. So it's not really surprising, to be honest. Um, So there's a lot more money that's going into passive and less money that's going into active um, funds at the moment. So I think you have to be able to understand where these um, passive managers are getting their information from. You're not going to be able to interact with them. I think if you are a big company with a favorable sector, you might be able to speak to a couple of your top shareholders, um, but the likelihood is that you're not going to be able to interact with these people. So you need to be able to figure out ways that they're going to get what is the right data from you. And that's your website, basically. And that's not just for passive investors. That's for all investors, for retail investors, for institutional investors. You know, when they're doing their due diligence and when they're looking at their investment approach or even they're just considering whether you might be um, of interest to them, they're going to do screening. You know, rating agencies scrape websites as well. It has to be your single source of truth. And then when you have all of that data on there, you need to be able to understand what is it that the investors want to be able to see. You know, your, your, your website is not just there for a company to be able to showcase what they think is important for everybody to know. Yes, that is important that they put that right information in, but you need to be able to understand who's going on there. Like what are the people that are actually ingesting that information? And then you want to be able to format it 
so that they can find exactly what they want quickly and easily and so that they don't go anywhere else to try and find that data. They need to get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And then you can track with analytics who's going on your website. If you're directing people to the website and you're saying all the information that you need is going to be there, when you're doing the capital markets days, you can, you can reference it quite a lot. Then you can start to see who's going on there and the traffic that you get. And that's going to help you with a little bit with the targeting as well. So I think that piece is, is really important. But there are also other ways that you can look at um, different areas of targeting as well that pull into more the, the thematic side of it as well, which takes you away from um, the, the active managers as well. I also asked if she had any advice on how to monitor investor targeting when companies are dealing with limited liquidity and free float. The one thing to do is to not turn the interest away when you do have it. You know, yeah. you really need to be able to meet with quite a lot of investors and you've got to be able to go to different areas like conferences, really open up your ability to be able to reach different areas of um, the market to be able to meet with them. At Q4, we spend a lot of time with clients who come with that issue talking about a type of like thematic targeting. So we look at other companies that have a similar setup. I wouldn't say it's like an issue, but um, their liquidity might be low. The free float might be low. They're not probably going to be targeting some of the, the bigger fund managers out there that might have limitations on whether they can invest in a company that, that is like that. So we look at other companies that, that have a similar structure And then we look at their investors, those that actually can invest in a company like that. And, and that's essentially looking outside of your peer group. Your peer group isn't always, they might be of your sector and they might have a similar operational um, standpoint as you, but they might not have the same free flow to see and they might not have the same liquidity as you. So sometimes it's really important to look outside of your own peer group to be able to understand what other types of investors that there might be. Lastly, I wanted to get your views on one of the questions asked by delegates at the event. What to do when companies are faced with a lot of investor demand? How to allocate time effectively? This is what Crawford Jones had to say. So um, I think part of that question as well was, um, do you ever decline IR meetings? Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely, all of our clients would say you should, shouldn't decline any meetings. You're ne you never know when they're going to, you know, even if they're from a place that you think is, is not a great outfit, it's not a great institution, you, you feel as if you don't really want to waste your time with them. One, you just don't know where they're going to end up next. They might move to a different institution. They all move around. You don't want to have that perception. They all talk to each other. You don't want to have somebody saying, well, you know, they think that they're too good for me and, and they've declined my meeting. There are ways in which you can um, facilitate meetings that you don't necessarily want to do one-on-one. -on -one. You can create fireside chats, you can create group meetings, you can look at hedge funds, you can group them together, you can have stipulations on not meeting them so many times in a year. I think one of the other panelists was mentioning the fact that when you have the likes of Millennium, they will have different areas within Millennium that will want to meet you and they tend to just reach out separately you can be quite forceful at bringing them all together. Um, you, can, you can have hedge fund breakfast. You can, you can do all of those different types of things to be able to mop it up in a sense that may, means that you can direct your time in a more um, effective manner. And that means that when you then speak to management about having these other meetings, you know that that saves their time to be able to do probably the, the more important meetings. 
And that was Tish Crawford Jones, director of IR at Q4, sharing her advice earlier this month at IR magazine Think Tank Europe in London. And from one leading IRO to another, stay tuned because coming up after the break is my conversation with Magda Palchinska, head of IR at Unicredit and winner of the IR magazine Best Investor Relations Officer Large Cap Award. Don't go away. Companies are always looking to build stronger relationships with current and potentially new investors. If you are a public company, Pulse by Public.com can help you build deeper relationships with your investors. Share your company narrative with innovative formats. Make investor information more discoverable. Reach retail investors where they're already engaged and much more. Pulse by Public.com helps IR teams engage their retail shareholders, amplify company communications and gain actionable insights into retail investor audiences. Visit public.com slash pulse to schedule a free demo. Magda Poltinska, Head of Investor Relations at Unicredit. Welcome to the Ticker Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show this month. Thank you very much for having me. So just to kick things off, Magda, can can you start uh, by telling our listeners about your role at uh, Unicredit and your wider experience as an IRO prior to joining this bank? So in terms of Unicredit, I moved to Milan in October 2021 to take up this role as head of the team. It was just in time for the strategy day. Unicredit unlocked a couple of months later, launched by the new CEO who had joined in 2021. So it was a pretty perfect timing. Uh, The bulk of my career was actually with UBS, where I spent 20 years, starting in 1998. But in terms of IR specifically, I became head of debt IR at UBS in 2012 and then quickly also started covering the equity side. I did this role in London, Singapore, Hong Kong, and finally New York, which allowed me to build relationships with investors all over the world. I left UBS in 2018 to become head of IR at Bank of New York Mellon, which I did for a couple of years until a few months before moving here uh, to Italy. So it's been a long and varied career. And next quarter will be my 45th set of results in IR, but it never gets boring. And that's what (laughs) I really enjoy about this role. Well, that sounds uh, like an amazing uh, career, amazing experience and certainly a milestone, I suppose, 45. Okay, and uh, thank you for that. And one of the reasons why I wanted to really have you on uh, on the show this month and have this conversation at this time is because at this year's IR Magazine Awards that were held just last month in June in London, you picked up a prize um, for Best Investor Relations Officer Large Cap. And so, first of all, I wanted to publicly congratulate you on, on this success. And um, then I also wanted to ask you, what does the IR Magazine Award mean to you and to your company? Well, uh, as this is an award which was voted on by those we interact with every day, it's a really wonderful acknowledgement uh, that the IR team and also our management delivers to our 
a high standard for our investors, whether equity, fixed income or ESG, and also for our analysts. So, you know, it was really uh, very exciting uh, to uh, to receive this on behalf of, of the team as well. And, uh, you know, in that same vein, just recently, one of our sell side actually highlighted in commentary that the excellent investor communication by Unicredit Management has been a driver for our outperformance. So all in all, it's been uh, it's been a very exciting uh, exciting month. I bet, I bet. Congratulations again. And uh, what what do you think are the the top three efforts? If we were to unpick just some of them, the the one you and and your business the prize this year. Uh, I think uh, if I had to narrow it down to top three, I would say you know the timely enhancements we've made to disclosure to cover emerging topics coupled with the clear guidance when a lot of the macro has been in flux and and clearly changing quickly, uh, delivering on our commitments and often exceeding them, and then having a very holistic engagement program which allows investors and sell side to have access to management and the IR team in different formats. Okay, and let's let's unpick some some of those a little bit farther. So um, ahead of this interview, you told me offline that uh, managing investor reaction to the current macroeconomic environment has been a challenging aspect of your function over the past months in the post-COVID environment. So um, and and the war in Ukraine, of course. And so I wondered if you could just expand a little bit on that. Uh, How has investor sentiment and behavior changed? and, and how have you kind of like tackled that change? So, uh, you know, the challenge I would say has been twofold uh, for um, for us specifically here in IR. Um, so with a macro, macro backdrop and a lot of macro themes out of our control, it has been very important to explain what is in management's control. So, uh, you know, the levers we have to navigate successfully through an uncertain and at times volatile backdrop and to keep delivering. So that that's one challenge. And the other one, which you know has been probably more specific uh, to Unicredit is muscle memory, which means that you know investors were often looking at Unicredit of the past, uh, which yeah. was a very different creature in terms of, for example, cost of risk um, or capital um, or, you know, strategy. So that has been specific. But also, for example, when it comes to muscle memory, investors have had concerns about Italy uh, because of the past. Although the country has performed much better than expectations, both economically and politically. So we have dedicated a lot of our disclosure to addressing uh, this muscle memory with clear and quantifiable proof points. It's been very important that these are very quantitative. Against that backdrop, investor sentiment on Unicredit in general has been very positive. I mean, our share price has been up 60% this year, which has been great. Um, the European banks have been doing very well. Uh, but the macro and central bank policies have caused nervousness. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's something that we've been trying to address uh, and discuss. Uh, I would say the nervousness has been more uh, prevalent amongst generalist PMs rather than the financial uh, specialists. But what, what's been also interesting um, is to see the disconnect between the constructive sell-side views uh, of the European bank sector and then the many investors who've been expecting Armageddon because 
Armageddon has definitely not happened and the banks have been doing very well, but they have derated. Uh, so this has been quite a new uh, kind of backdrop for IROs uh, to yeah. uh, to manage. Uh, so, you know, it's been really important to reiterate the delivery of, of our strategy um, since mid-2021 um, and keeping the focus on the future, but underpinned by the resiliency of the company, you know, in terms of capital, low structural cost of risk, you know, overlays, profitable yeah. growth, capital efficiency. So that's one thing. And... Another, I mean, I would just say one other interesting change, which isn't linked to the macroeconomic environment, but it's it's something that IROs have had to navigate, is the drama created by headlines and social media. Um, that's not necessarily accurate, um, and it can cause a lot of concern for investors, sometimes unnecessarily, but it's hard for them to, to gauge that. So here, IR plays an important role in providing the uh, the details necessary. For example, when we had SVB happen in the US, huge amount of concerns that the same would happen in Europe. Mm. Social media drama is something to to keep an eye on these days, isn't it? Um, in in your previous um, answer and outline of how you've been managing this um, this macroeconomic environment, you also mentioned the old Unicredit and then the new strategy that you have uh, a Unicredit, and you are two years into this new strategy. You told me. Um, so can can we maybe talk a little bit about the main changes that characterize this new strategy at Unicredit, and you would like investors to take into account? Sure. Uh, there's a lot to to the new yeah. strategy, but if I had to choose three main changes, I would say empowering uh, the organization and investing to drive high quality growth while at the same time streamlining and, and making it more efficient. Um, up number two, optimizing capital allocation, new approach to managing RWAs. And number three, attractive and sustainable distributions to investors and per share value creation while maintaining leading capital strength. And that is absolutely key. The investors have reacted very positively on our strategy day itself and and since then as well, because the bank has consistently delivered and we've often beat our own expectations. And, you know, this has allowed us to create a track record to show that Unicredit is progressing very well on our transformation. You know, I would say that um, one of the main things we discuss is that we've set a new floor for profitability. So this is not as good as it gets. And we're very well positioned to navigate any extremely negative macro developments should this happen, because clearly, you know, European banks are being uh, hampered by the concerns of investors over yeah. that. Okay. And uh, I mean, until now, we, we touched on, the, you know, the most challenging things, but I, in, offline, I, I'd also ask you about, you know, something that was really rewarding and that has been rewarding and perhaps not so difficult to tackle in the past year. And then you mentioned engaging with the buy side and the sell side. So what has been your approach uh, behind the successful engagement with both parties? So I think uh, for you know, for myself, it's been uh, really focusing on transparency, consistency, and frequency. So making use also of different uh, brokers, um, you know, making sure we have access to lots of different investors in different geographical areas, you know, existing holders, targets, 
generalists, financial specialists. So um, it's been making it broad. And one of the ways that can be successful is by planning for the year really early because it allows you to book time in the in the C-suite calendar. This is a very scarce resource, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, that's really what it boils down to. And, and in, in this in, in engagement with investors, what type of events do you prioritize? Is it investor days, is it roadshows? Is it in person? Is it virtual for you? What is the trend in that engagement? format? Sure. Uh, We have a very holistic approach. Uh, So we attend a handful of major conferences, sometimes with the CEO uh, doing a fireside chat, sometimes with the CFO doing a fireside chat, you know, supported by meetings throughout the day. Um, Also, sometimes with IR only, depends. Uh, Clearly, as I mentioned before, management time is a scarce resource, so it has to be used uh, carefully. Uh, We have a very thorough quarterly roadshow with both the CEO and CFO and and we use a combination of in-person and virtual meetings so I have to say one of the silver linings of COVID is that virtual remains accepted um, and widely used it has really helped to maximize engagement while being very efficient with the time Uh, We also organize an analyst call with the CFO only post uh, the results call to allow for more technical modeling questions. And then off cycle, we travel on organized roadshows, for example, to the US or other European centers, and that can be a combination of management or IR. Of course, we also host reverse roadshows here in Milan. Um, and that's also a great opportunity to showcase our management bench. So it's not yeah. only the CEO and the CFO. Uh, we highlight other uh, key members of the C-suite. And then we have lots of ad hoc meetings. And you know, so far this year, we've actually had almost 170 meetings with over 250 investors and we're only in the uh, beginning of July. Yeah, that's that's a lot. And how how big is your IR team? How many of you are there? So aside from myself, we have 10 uh, and, you know, we have a number dedicated to equity, uh, some to fixed income, ESG and rating agencies. And um, I mean, earlier you mentioned that uh, you would, you, you know, you want investors to consider the future uh, of, of Unicredit. So let's cast an eye to it then. And then what what does the, the future hold uh, for Unicredit maybe in the next year or, I don't know, five years down the line? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's still much that we are going to deliver for our stakeholders. You know, Unicredit Unlocked is until 2024. So that'll be the first three years of our strategy. But uh, we have still much uh, to uh, to do. And, uh, you know, in terms of delivering, it's not just for our investors. It's also for our communities and for our clients and for our employees. Um, and, you know, I'm in a fairly unique uh, position where I've been part of a team delivering a positive message for nine quarters now. And uh, and there's definitely uh, more to come. And, you know, as I said, the backdrop's challenging, but the the organization keeps delivering. Okay. And just to close then, if you could mm-hmm. pass one IR lesson to your peers, to other IROs who are after that award and <laughs> that recognition, what would that lesson be? Yeah, I think for me, it's the importance of relationships. So internally, it's to build an understanding of what IR does, 
and what our investors expect of us. Uh, it's also for IR to learn more about what is happening within the company to get inspiration for what to highlight externally to bring kind of the whole strategy to life. And getting that internal buy-in also helps us to get the information that we need, which is desired by the market. And then externally, it's to build credibility, to build trust, and to allow investors and analysts to feel comfortable giving us feedback, both good and bad, because that is also absolutely critical to improving any IR program. So what it Thank comes down to is people. People and relationship. What, what do you think about of the fact that some say artificial intelligence will help IROs to focus more on that relationship building because it will take off your hands some of the work that is really time consuming? What do you think about that? Do you think it's true? Gosh, I, 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 I have to say the jury is still out. Obviously, it's, it's early days. Uh, let's yeah. see. I mean, if, it's, if it helps on the nitty gritty, that's, I guess, helpful. But on the flip side, it's actually that work also helps us get a good understanding of, uh, of lots of things. So I don't know if we want to phase it out completely. But again, jury's out. Let's see. Okay. Thank you very much for being with us uh, on the show this month, Magda. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Artificial intelligence is the topic everyone is talking about. What does it really mean for investor relations professionals? Book your place now to join the AI for IR Forum in New York on December the 1st. This essential in-person event will give you insights into building your AI-powered IR strategy. The AI for IR Forum features AI veterans from the buy side, experts from tech companies and issuers who have all successfully implemented AI. The forum will deliver actionable checklists and best practice booklets. Attendees will put their questions directly to the specialist and find out the latest on the practical and ethical uses of AI, the concerns over accuracy and privacy, and much more. The AI for IR Forum in New York on December the 1st is expected to sell out, so don't delay. Visit irmagazine.com for details and to book your place now. Welcome to IR Pulse, the segment where we talk to IROs analysts and executives about the evolution of IR. This month, I am delighted to welcome to the show filmmaker Chris Temple, who has co-directed a compelling new feature documentary called This Is Not Financial Advice. Welcome to the Ticker Podcast, Chris. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on This Is Not Financial Advice and its official selection at Tribeca Film Festival in June this year. Tell us what your documentary is about and what was it about retail investing in particular that inspired you to make it? Yeah, so let me take you back to when we began this film. So this was early 2021, um, about January 2021. Uh, it seemed like every social media post or news headline was about some other stock or crypto you know, going up and another person who got rich overnight, uh, whether it was on GameStop or Bitcoin or Dogecoin or some form of speculative investment. Um, and so at the time, uh, I got really drawn into it as a regular retail investor and was getting pulled into a lot of these circles. I was on different Reddit streams, following folks on Twitter. And I think to me, uh, you know, the film in one word is about FOMO. It's about this fear of missing out that we were seeing in in the market when it seems like everything's going up, You, someone else is getting rich overnight. And I think the retail movement was getting really attracted to, um, to this get rich quick idea 
uh, and it's been really amplified by crypto. So our approach has been to follow four different individual investors over the last um, you know two plus years as they've tried to navigate this this really constantly shifting marketplace um, when the internet and social media have made it even more complicated. Absolutely. All four of the protagonists, if you will, have a fascinating perspective and motivations. And it's not just the, the get rich quick gold mine fever kind of approach that perhaps people might expect when it comes to these uh, meme stocks. Uh, let me ask you, how did you go about finding and persuading the retail investors and influencers you filmed? I mean, what were your expectations going into interviews and what surprised you about them? Yeah, I mean, as you know, talking about money is personal, right? I mean, you know, if someone emails you and asks you to uh, talk about every investment you have and your choices about money, you might not be too keen to do it right off the bat. Um, and so, you know, we really took the long approach here of, look, this wasn't a film we wanted to just, um, you know, film with someone in one interview at one moment in time and, and move on. We wanted to really get a depth and a breadth of understanding of their lives. So, we spent about two years with each of these characters, each of these people, um, and it took that time and trust to get them to want to participate, to want to open up more, to want to be sharing these more intimate moments where, you know, you'll see in the documentary, um, you know, we filmed about 300 hours of footage and some of them are really intimate moments of conversations with their parents of, um, you know, I'm there at four in the morning, one morning when Crow, the main character, wakes up and is checking his crypto accounts from his bed in the middle of the night. And, you know, and I just stayed in his apartment as he fell asleep and, you know, was there and, and you know, sleeping in his space. And so, you know, the the intimacy of really collaborating to tell a story like this together is really um, it takes a lot of trust, takes a lot of collaboration. I'm really just so thankful to the four main characters for welcoming me in and, and being willing to help others understand the their relationships to money through the portraits of these four people. And that's really our hope and goal with the film is to, you know, allow anybody from all walks of life to watch this film and, and see different investment strategies, to see different approaches to risk risk tolerance and um and hopefully, you know, learn something along the way. And I um uh, you know, about uh, hopefully a, a cautionary tale uh, about how to approach money. It certainly is a cautionary tale and a, a white knuckle ride to <laughs> some extent. I was really feeling for these characters, if you will. Um, Absolutely. I mean, the documentary was shot a couple of years ago during the height of meme stock mania, of course. And since then, the market has seen some volatility, it's fair to say. Are you in touch with the subjects of your film still? And if so, have, do you have any insight into how their behaviors and, and attitudes may have changed through that volatility? Yeah. And so we were able to film between the beginning of 2021 and actually the end of 2022. So we were able to follow through quite a rise and fall story with the film, which we're you know, super happy about to make sure that we're not just giving a one-sided look at how easy it is to make money in a bull market, right? Um when at a time when 96% of all stocks went up uh, over you know the 2021 year. So um, you know we the the film is fairly up to date in what you see with the characters of of how they're ending up. But I think um, you know unfortunately uh, you know for Pro uh, he you know he lost most of this Dogecoin investment back to his original 180,000. Um, what the surprise turn is, and I think what was one of the more concerning parts to me of the film is that as Pro is 
when he made this $3 million, he started accumulating a big YouTube and Twitter following, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and with that started coming sponsorship dollars. So uh, different crypto coins or companies would be sponsoring him to talk about their product or their coin online um, and to get and encourage other people to buy into these cryptos. And so he's now been able to make a significant amount of money, almost $700,000 um, over the past few months uh, from different sponsorship deals that he's getting uh, to encourage people to buy coins, whether it's Floki coin or Pepe coin or these other coins that are still happening in this market. Um, May of 2023 was the second highest point of crypto trading activity since Dogecoin in 2021. So, you know, this isn't a market that is entirely dead. Um, I think you're seeing actually a lot of the base factors of why this was going up still existing. Um, so, uh, you know, Pro, I think it really had this surprise turn of turning into a financial influencer and a financial advisor. And I think it brings up a lot of questions for, you know, people on this podcast or others who are financial advisors out in the world of how do we shout louder than they are, right? If there, if there are people out there encouraging people to buy crypto or trying to be scammy on YouTube and uh, running pump and dump schemes, the rest of us who are trying to give good financial education and financial information for people, we need to make sure that we're working double as hard right now to, to keep up in this market and, and make sure that retail investors are hearing these perspectives of, of what a slow and steady financial approach around compound interest can look like. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of noise out there on social media, a quandary then for more traditional investor relations professionals to cut through it and and reach to these retail investors somehow. I mean, where do you think this investment trend will go? Is crypto the, the gateway for more traditional forms of investing? It sounds like there's plenty of coins still out there. Yeah. I mean, I think there's been, I think we're now over 27,000 coins have been created um, and speculated on. And some of these have, you know, market caps in the tens of billions of, at certain points. You know, these are, these are, there's a significant amount of capital that are, that's flowing into these, not just from retail, but, but also from institutional investors. And I mean, to talk about retail for a moment, I mean, I do really, really hope that crypto or meme stocks can be a pipeline to get and a gateway for people to get into investing. And, and I think um, hopefully, uh, you know, you don't lose everything in the journey to get there. But I mean, there, there's no better way to learn about investing than by doing. And sometimes you make a mistake and maybe you over leverage or you risk too much. And, and, you know, my hope is that you can get smarter as a result. But, you know, I think, something we talk about in the film is that, you know, almost, you know, 80 plus percent of stocks are owned by 10% of Americans. And, you know, that is a, that is a problem. And that kind of wealth inequality um, that you're seeing being perpetuated um, through a lack of access to financial markets is a real, real problem in this country. So I'm very hopeful that the ease of letting investors, new investors come into the market through fractionalized trading and, um, you know, and zero commission trades will actually help encourage people to at least have some skin in the game long term and be able to make some passive wealth accumulation. And um, and I do think, you know, the income inequality gap is very difficult to solve, but wealth inequality, we actually have more chance to solve if we can really bring more and more people into the market. So I want retail, as many people of retail to come into the market. And I think it's just as we open up, you know, the democratization of finance is a double-edged sword. You welcome in millions of new people, tens of millions of new people into markets. That's great. But 
we also don't have any financial personal finance classes taught in high schools. You know, only 22% of high school kids have any class of personal finance here in the US. And you're like, well, that's a problem if you're going to open it up where people can gamble their life savings on their phone in under 30 seconds. We need to help people, you know, match the the efforts around financial education as we're opening things up. Absolutely. And that was definitely one of the takeaways that I had uh, watching and enjoying the documentary. I mean, clearly you've done extensive research on the topic of retail investing. What should IR teams at public companies know about modern retail investors, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, these are people, right? And I think that's what I learned through the process of making this film is that it's easy to look at retail as as you know a, a mob or one big group of monolithic group of people. But no, when it comes to money, everybody has different goals. Everybody has different psychologies coming into it. And, um, you know, there's a book called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel that um, I'm sure many of you have read, but, you know, if you haven't, I think it, it provided a real backbone to us for the film and Morgan's an interview throughout the film, helping to provide insight into retail and, and what we're seeing in this movement. Um, but I think, you know, the, the lesson is to, to, to really listen and actually understand the factors of why retail is making the decisions that they are and not just write it off as stupid, because I think it'd be easy to look at a decision like, what pro did to gamble his life savings on Dogecoin. But I think when you start to understand his why, you know, him as an undocumented immigrant who had been cut out of many other opportunities, um, he felt like for him, there wasn't much of a path into the middle, middle class other than taking a big bet in this way. Um, you start to kind of form a bit more of a picture here of, of his motivations and, and, um, and why he's doing what he's doing. And I think you see it, you know, a great parallel, I think, to some of the crypto gambling or speculation uh, is the lottery system here in the US that often it's those who have the least that are willing to take the biggest financial risks, right? And that's why I don't judge any of the characters in our film. I also myself got caught up in in speculating in, in crypto and wanting to get rich overnight is um, you know, sometimes it can be really frustrating to see others making a lot of money and you're working hard and you can't get that leg up. You can't reach the middle class. You're struggling to put food on the table. And you know, again, 50% of Americans don't have $500 in savings at any given time. Like there's, there's some real struggles here that are happening for people that, Hey, why not put it on black or why not buy your lottery ticket or see if Dogecoin could go up. And so I think just taking the time as, um, you know, as investors, as people who care about wealth accumulation, uh, to take the time to listen to retail and and understand the factors that are going into it. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. Dollars and cents. Let me ask you, uh, what can IR professionals take away from your film to help them better understand, engage and anticipate their retail investors? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... From this side, again, because many IR professionals can't actually give financial advice on YouTube, nor are we willing to do that and go out and and uh, take the time to to compete with YouTubers for putting out information. Um, I just think it's it's on anyone who's currently a part of the investing landscape to make sure that they are trying to make information accessible to everyone and to support financial education efforts, whether that's at their kids' schools, whether that's, um, you know, just to communities that don't typically have access to 
financial education. And it's something that we're doing around this film is taking the film and, and splitting it up into modules around different financial topics and, and building out a curriculum with an amazing nonprofit called Next Gen Personal Finance. Um, and they do teacher trainings for 15,000 teachers and, and bring financial education materials to 3 million students around the U.S. And um, that is so vitally important to support and that those kinds of efforts. So we're raising funds for Next Gen. We're also putting the film into um, as many kind of schools and communities that don't get these conversations. Because unfortunately, those who are often losing in the retail conversation are those who have just started into these markets and don't have the money to lose. And, and that's the tragedy of it is um, we need to be empowering those individuals uh, through as much as we can. For sure. Yeah. Universal story. Where can people watch your documentary and when? Right now we, we are going to take the momentum coming out of Tribeca just a few weeks ago and, um, and we're selling the film. So we're bringing it out into uh, to streamer markets, and then also across uh, individual TV broadcast markets. So by the fall, you should be able to see it available kind of anywhere and everywhere. It'll be you know on TV, streaming, and uh, for transactional iTunes sales as well. Well, fantastic. Best of luck with This Is Not Financial Advice. And many thanks for talking to IR Pulse by public.com for the ticker. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a great conversation. You've been listening to the latest episode of The Ticket Podcast, brought to you by IR Magazine, in partnership with our sponsor, Pulse by Public.com. Huge thanks for their support. You can learn more about Pulse at Public.com forward slash Pulse. Thanks also to everyone who took the time of being with us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, thanks for listening.